Welcome to the Evidence-Based Pilates Podcast with your host, Adam McAtee. This is your home to become a more fearless and confident Pilates instructor while using science-based strategies, which is exactly why we're going to dive right in. All right, welcome to this week's episode of the Evidence-Based Pilates Podcast. And we have a juicy episode here today because I have a very special guest, uh, Jeremy uh, Lavender here with uh, with uh, Movement Science Made Simple. Uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Jeremy. It's great to have Thanks. you. Thanks. Thanks, Adam. It's good to be here. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's one of my favorite things in the podcast is being able to catch up with people because I don't think I've, I, I connected to you on social media, but I don't think I've seen you for pre-COVID, like for- Definitely, it, definitely since pre-COVID. <laughs> yeah. So I'm excited to catch up uh, with you today and also uh, learn from you and have all of the listeners learn from you as well. And for um, anyone who's listening who doesn't know you, um, I'd love for you to, to share uh, who you are and uh, what your story is. Sure, yeah. So um, I'm a physical therapist and a Pilates teacher in New York City. Um, I work in a private outpatient practice doing physical therapy, working for another person who owns the, the practice. I do a little bit of teaching Pilates still sort of in that context. Uh, I, I had a Pilates studio for many years in Manhattan. Um, and I've been teaching Pilates for a lot longer than I've been a physical therapist. I've uh, only been practicing as a PT for a little over seven years. And I've been teaching Pilates since, I think, 2002. So that is my story. And then I have, uh, with Kara Reeser, a business called Movement Science Made Simple, which is uh, continuing education for Pilates teachers. Yeah, well, shout out to Kara, and, and you're doing incredible work uh, with Movement Science Made Simple. Thank so, you. Like something I can relate to you on is like that. This is very on a very like meta level, like doing Pilates, and then somehow finding myself in physical therapy school, um, or becoming a physical therapist in your case. And what was that journey like for you? Like, why? Like, what inspired you? Why did you make that decision? Yeah, I mean, I, I had what is like a pretty common New York City physical therapy trajectory, which was I was a dancer, and then I became a Pilates teacher, and then I became a physical therapist. I've never heard of that before. Oh, never, nobody does that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think, you know, for me, it was like I had been teaching Pilates for a while. I was done with dancing, and I there were a lot of things about teaching Pilates that I liked. Like I liked working with people's bodies. I like working with movement. I like this sort of the way a, a day is structured where somebody comes in for like an hour and then they go away and another person comes in, like something about that worked for me. Um, but I really wanted to have more information. Like I, I sort of found myself in this place where I think every Pilates teacher finds them sooner or later, finds themselves, themselves sooner or later, which is like people coming in, having these diagnoses or these even just these aches and pains that I didn't quite know what to do with. So I was I sort of concluded that I I needed to do something if I was going to keep like sort of in this lane as a as a career path. Yeah, I, I can certainly relate to that. I'm like, you have a spondy low light what? Mm -hmm. um, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, what are we supposed to not do? So, so there, so it sounds like there is like a, like a knowledge and a skills gap that you had a desire to fulfill in, in that, in your sense, like, like, like why, why go to physical therapy school instead of like get seven more Pilates certificates? 
Yeah, I really wanted to do something academic. Like I thought about doing like Columbia University has a master's in motor learning and motor control. I thought about doing something like that. And I think I, I concluded that I wanted it to be clinical, but I wanted it to be rigorous and like science based, if not like hard science, but you know, like based in science. Like I had spent a lot of time in like the kind of woo-woo side of movement and body stuff, right? Like I'd done a lot of different kinds of sort of dance adjacent physical practices that were very experiential. I'd had all sorts of different kinds of body work and I, I wanted something that was a little um, just more like sciencey for want of a better word. And I wanted a program that I thought was gonna be hard. Like I wanted something academically rigorous. Yeah, so it sounds like you wanted a challenge and you wanted some some science uh, behind it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I can 100 um, percent, you know, relate to that. And because 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 what's like one of the thing with like going into like a science uh, um, uh, academic career would be like, oh, then I'm going to have all the answers because I don't know the answers. And then science knows everything. And so therefore, I'm going to know everything. That's not my experience. I get kind of like more uncomfortable. I get more comfortable not knowing because I'm like, it's not on Google Scholar. I, I don't know. Um, what has that been like for you to be like, to go to school, to, to become a physical therapist and then come out and be like, damn it, I might not have all the answers. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, I completely agree with what I think you just said, which is that like, you know, it's, it's, I'm much more comfortable saying, I don't know than I was before, or like, I don't have any compunctions about saying, I don't, I don't know, because, you know, there's sort of, there's sort of like more gradations of, I don't know now, like I might know something cause I know that nobody knows, right. It's not known, right. I might know some, not know something because I haven't like looked at the research in a while and I need to go look at the research and see what people are currently thinking, or I've never thought about this particular subject very much. And I need to go check it out. You know, I might, I might not know, and I might be quite confident that we don't need to know the answer to this, whatever the question is to move forward. So there's just more, more, more flavors of, I don't know. And then there's a lot that is like, I don't know because I only went to PT school for three years. Cause that's how long it lasted. And there's like way more to learn than you could ever possibly learn in, in those yeah. three years. There are only two slides on that topic. Yeah, um, exactly. But it, but it sounds like there's like, um, like it, it, Something that I, I've experienced, uh, you may have experienced prior to PT school, and I imagine listeners experience is that sense of imposter syndrome is like, I don't know, like equals like I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not insert blah, 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 enough. Whereas when when you, you hang out around long enough or you read enough books, you go to school, whatever it is, you just, it sounds like it doesn't threaten you, like your integrity or your your value as an instructor to be like, I don't know. And you also demonstrate a really good, um, uh, what do you say, like, like cognitive agility to figure out the answer. It's like, I don't know, but I know how to find the answer. It's just going to take me a little bit of time. And I think it's really important for anyone to hear, like, you don't need to know all the answers. Like, science doesn't know all the answers. And, you know, you just got to do the best you can um, and, and learn how to find find the answers. But then, like, you've, you've also kind of shifted, like, um, or something like that you've done that's really inspiring um, is, is you've created, like, Movement Science Made Simple uh, with Kara. With um, tell me more about that. Like, what's the inspiration for Movement Science Made Simple, the mission, et cetera? Yeah, I'll tell you 
like our sort of origin story, like okay. the kind of like myth version. It was not the myth because it's true, but it's sort of like, you know, if we were it's comic fine. book superheroes, the, the origin story. And then I'll talk a little bit about the mission, which is a little different, I think. But, you know, basically what happened was I, you know, I knew Kara very well. We've been friends for a long time. For listeners who don't know, Kara is a, was a student of Kathy Grant. So a lot of her like work is sort of based on the that kind of lineage and you know I had spent a lot of time like when I was training to to teach Pilates I studied in Boulder but I did a lot of my observation and practice teaching and taking sessions at Kara's studio which at that time was in Denver so I was pretty familiar with like her way of teaching Pilates and also we had like I had danced in her dance company when I was in college you know so we had a lot of shared movement experience and I had not been in the my graduate PT program for very long like I think it may have been the first semester just in like gross anatomy where I started to like kind of have these little flashes of insight where I realized that you know a lot of the stuff that she was doing was like much more sophisticated from a point of view of particularly like joint mechanics like I think it was like sort of the way that Kathy's were addresses the spine that I thought was much more nuanced than sort of like the way I had been basically taught in my classical Pilates program. So I, at that point, sort of proposed that we should put our heads together and do something where we kind of used this lens of like a little bit of a more sophisticated look at anatomy and kinesiology and physiology and motor learning theory and apply it to like the way that she was teaching to sort of illuminate what what was good about it and so that that eventually became movement science made simple which is now like a whole series of weekend courses and little offshoots and um stuff mostly online now but still a little bit in person um, but there was also an element to wanting to create this programming that had to do with the fact that we both had Pilates studios. We were both studio owners and in this position where we could see the, you know, by and large less experienced teachers, you know, from, in my case, from like all sorts of different backgrounds of Pilates training and sort of see what the shared gaps were in knowledge. And, you know, like no matter... You know, some some Pilates training programs have an emphasis, more of an emphasis on anatomy than others, but no training program can cover like everything you would really want to know when you become a Pilates teacher, right? So, like I said, everybody has that experience of being in the Pilates studio and being like, "Oh, I don't really know what I'm I'm doing here." So, in in a sense, we wanted to we wanted to create something for new teachers where it's like, "Okay, I'm going to save you all of this time." It took me ten years to figure this out. And also going to PT school, let's let's give you like the highlights. Like you can avoid all the mistakes that I made, and here's some really important information. It's not that hard if somebody explains it to you well, right? And then we also want it to be sophisticated enough that a, an experienced Pilates teacher would also be getting something from it. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I love how you mentioned how like every Pilates, like like in a Pilates school, like you just there's no there's not enough time like to to learn it all. And and something you hinted at earlier was even like. It's the same thing with PT school. <laughs> like, you go to PT school and like you still don't know all, you know all the answers, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's but it, you know you just stay stay curious in, in things of that nature. And, and one thing that you mentioned that that um, that perked my ears a little bit was you mentioned that like um, the uh, Kara's work inspired by Kathy was very like nuanced with the spine. You, you mentioned the spine particularly, <laughs> but I imagine just in general. 
Um, how is that like um, different and inspirational relative to like previous Pilates trainings? Like, what does that mean? Like more nuanced with this? Yeah, I mean, I think that one's a really easy, clear example. It's like, you know, I think I was sort of, I mean, nobody ever sat me down and said this, but I think I had the impression like that your spine like goes like in every direction kind of equally and kind of uniformly, right? Like if it, I always use the example in, in our courses of like, I take a spring off of the Cadillac and right, I, I sort of had the idea that it's just like bend in all the, all the directions and it would be like equal throughout the spine. But like, as you know, right, the spine moves differently in the different regions. And it's even like the upper cervicals are very specific. The lower cervicals move different. The upper thoracic moves different than the lower thoracic, the upper lumbar and the low, you know, there's, you can slice it and dice it in all sorts of different ways, but to just knowing like, oh, you know what, hey, there's not that much rotation in the lumbar spine, right? If you're working on whole spine or whole trunk rotation, that's not where you're getting the bulk of it, you know, stuff like that. Or like, this is how the atlanto-occipital joint moves, or this is how the atlanto-axial joint moves, and this is actually where you get most of your neck rotation, like stuff like that, that's not that hard to understand if somebody like sits you down and like, sort of demonstrates it to you can really illuminate your teaching in a way where you're like not asking for things that aren't reasonable from people right or if you want a big movement you know where it's going to come from in the spine and where it's probably not going to come from in the spine yeah and you end up getting to teach more confidence right because then you know in in that confidence just from like a therapeutic alliance perspective like when you're not questioning yourself that goes a hell of a long way in terms of someone just just having a better movement experience but like like also like a big thing with the spine like like with me like i was always taught like we have to extend from our thoracic spine like you have to like beat people with the hammer to like bend there and then just recognizing that like you do right you should ex you know extend where you can extend but a thoracic extension just looks flat because you start, that's, yeah. <laughs> like, that's all that's, that's, that is it. Right. You know, sure. cause when we think extension, we think back bend. Um, so, so it sounds like, like the work with Carrie and Kathy kind of took those, those nuances, um, which are really just hard sciences. Yeah. So Kathy, Kathy has like a whole system of sort of images where you sort of work your way down the spine and kind of divide into these sub regions. That's very like, um, fundamental to the work that she called, I think she called, I don't think anybody, any of her students coined this, but she called it before the hundreds or before the yeah, hundred. So, so that, you know, that, that image of like the sort of numbered bands allows people to sort of work with the different regions of the spine differently, right. Rather than trying to treat it as a uniform whole. Absolutely. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's awesome that you're integrating, you know, Pilates history right with with today's modern science and just hard sciences um and and so how do you integrate that with something like like motor learning because because i know motor learning is part of your courses motor control motor learning and then how do you integrate the two because there's like this there's like this beautiful balance between like knowing your anatomy but then like not confusing the crap out of people with the with the motor learning and like just keeping things simple like how do you share that with pilates instructors yeah, I mean, I'm not like a huge expert on on motor learning theory, particularly, but the points that I sort of repeatedly find myself making are like, like motor learning takes practice, like all learning, right? And I think in Pilates, we, and like this is true in physical therapy, I think to a degree, we often jump to like, 
oh, something is weak or something is tight or something is dysfunctional. I'm like, this person has not learned how to do this weird thing that you're asking them to do. Like, give them a minute, right? I mean, even as things make it simple as like, you know, I was taught in my training basically to give like a cue every rep of an exercise, right? Like, which is insane from a learning perspective, and right? It's like, it's exhausting as a teacher and it's insane as a client, like to be, to like, like who is it taking in all that information? And also like, why are you starting on the first rep? Like give them a second to like do the thing, right? And I, this is something I definitely observed when I had a studio, like some teachers coming in and like telling people like blah, 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 before they had even started to move and like neglecting to tell them, pull the bar down, right? Straight in your arms, right? Like all of this like very like detailed sort of alignment stuff and like not not the basics, which points to another thing that I know you talk about a lot, which is like the internal versus external cueing thing, right? Like oh, yeah. people, people, you know, you know, I think if you, you can correct me if I if I'm putting this in a way that doesn't seem right, but you know, basically my understanding of the research is like people with like at the very beginning of learning a skill might improve with internal cueing but as they approach getting better at a skill usually external cues work work better right like keep Perfect. your eye on the ball keep your eye on the ball kind of yeah things like, like that view the rollout <laughs> like right or reach forward reach for the wall in front of you right yeah it almost, push it, yeah you know go ahead yeah push your feet down into the floor right yeah, like in a way that you can just like easily like um, see how that makes sense. It's like have like invite your neighbor over to do Pilates, like a neighbor that's never seen a reformer and then get them to do the hundred and or the footwork and the hundred and don't ever refer to a body part. You know, it's like like there's no way like in a beginner, like they're learning what to do, right? right. So when you're learning what to do, like you got to refer to body parts. Um, but, but yeah, so it's, so it's just, you know, keeping, keeping things, things simple and like keeping people motivated. But like one of the best things that I, that came out of that for me was like, oh, you mean I get to use half as many words and it's good for them and it's based on science. Oh, shit. Like, imagine if you use like a thousand words a session. I don't know how many words are said in a session. And you've had <laughs> like, you know, five sessions a day five days a week that's twenty five thousand words right cut that in half like yeah. if you said if you said 12 what's that 1200 500 12,500 less words a week you think you'd have more energy yeah no kidding yeah <laughs> yeah um so so yeah so it's like that's the beauty of just of having science that's a really good example of like um just knowing information and like neither like w when you know enough information about like multiple like our topic like all the way to the left and all the way to the right, like you'll find yourself somewhere in the middle. Like internal cues aren't bad. Like beginners, it's great. Um, you know, there's other the aesthetics. It's really good. Um, nervous system dysfunction. Like that's another one. Um, but but with that, I we'll get out of the the um, motor learning rabbit hole. Yeah. Uh, but with that, like one thing that's that's a common topic. Uh, you know, within within the Pilates industry is is like discussion on like muscle specificity, and like we need to work these muscles, right? Or we need to refer to these muscles. This muscle is good. Um, this muscle is bad. And like a 
Uh, one example is like the like the traps, right? The upper trapezius not allowed to work, you know, stuff like that. Like, how do you how do you integrate um, or how do you approach those topics like with with your own work as a as a physical therapist, Pilates instructor, and educator? Yeah, I mean, I would say you know, you and I talked about like what are we going to talk about on this podcast, and this is a subject that is uh, near to near and dear to my heart, and also sort of ever present because it's true in physical therapy world too right i would actually argue that the reason that we have these ideas in pilates is mostly because of physical therapy like they've trickled them. through physical i do routinely blame for the physical therapist for this problem in the pilates industry so you know yeah like thing you're talking about of like you know sort of blaming everybody's upper traps for like overworking right or everybody's glutes are underworking or falling asleep or having amnesia right or we have to like sort of pre-cue the transverse abdominis to protect the back right or to do a movement correctly or to do like anything at all and i think you know there's you know we can talk about those individual examples there's millions of them right everybody's tfl is blamed or their hip flexors are sort of broadly blamed don't use them don't use them when you're doing hip flexion <laughs> somehow. You know, I think a, a corollary of the glute amnesia thing is this idea that's around nowadays that everybody's like quad dominant or like, like that's a, oh, yeah. that's a, that's a thing. Um, you know, we could, we could do a whole like podcast series probably on the magical qualities that have been attributed to the iliopsoas. Um, you know, so, you know, we right. could take them right. sort of one by yeah, we could take them sort of one by one, but I think there's also, you know, a lot to be said about the the whole approach, right? It's an approach that's like, uh, first of all, from a learning perspective, if you're cueing movement is like, probably creates some problems, right? But it's also a place where, uh, you know, I think a little bit of research that was, you know, done probably in the 80s in most of these cases has been like, has blossomed into like a whole, philosophy or sort of cottage industry and like i said it's it's as true in the physical therapy world as it is in the pilates world um you know so if you ask me how do i deal with it i mean the way i, I deal with it in movement science made simple with our students is by like laying out the case for why it's not true right like you know we we did i knew i've seen you posting about uh, the paper, the myth of core stability, online yeah. recently, and we had, yeah, and we had a study. We had a study group about it last week, right? Which is where, in which uh, Al Laterman takes uh, like a very systematic look at the ideas around the like sort of core, but particularly this sort of transverse abdominus flavor of core that I think we anybody who is trained in Pilates, like you know from the 2000s on is sort of familiar with, right? Yeah. And it and it shows up, you know, in, you know, like, you know, a lot in, in, in my experience and a lot of like sort of feeling like you have to, you have to talk about it, first of all, and clients need to consciously uh, contract it to do all sorts of different kind of movements. And it seems to be attached to an idea that you're, you need it to sort of support your, your back, right? So for the transverse abdominis, the rationale has to do with safety and it also has to do with back pain, I think. Yeah, and, and there's, 
and, and we had a little bit of a conversation of like the, the value of just understanding the basics, right? So like one basic that I'm on like a mission to try and um, share with the world is like the definition of pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience that, that is associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Can you tell how many times I've said that? Oh shit. That's great. I still don't mm-hmm. really can ever say it all at once like we, that. It's pretty it all year for the diploma of clinical Pilates. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyways, the point is like, it's like sensory and emotional and like biomechanics doesn't have emotions, you, you know? So it's like, it's automatically like, maybe doesn't cover all of it but but then also like specifically with the transverse abdominis like we talked a little bit of like the is hodges and someone so paper in like mm-hmm. 1996 where they just did rapid arm movements and they and they had people that were uh had chronic low back pain and they found a delay in transverse abdominis activation fucking delay was like it was two or 20 i think it was two milliseconds or 20 milliseconds. yeah it was definitely like very tiny fractions of of a second that no one could detect with their hands or their eyes, right? So one of the things that'd be footwork and you're staring at them. <laughs> right. You yes. The right. There? You bet you better get your electrodes out <laughs> and your computer. They're in my right? eye. Yeah, but that's that's right. And I so that's this very interesting research. And Paul Hodges, I think Carolyn Richardson was on like at least one of those those papers, but I'm sure there are other like people on his in his lab but in paul hodges has done tons of super interesting work on the multifidi and the pelvic floor and all of it is i think is certainly worth knowing about it and useful but this is definitely a case where it's like the like the the things that folks extrapolated from this research are like don't have anything to really do with the original research right like you mentioned that it was a timing issue right it doesn't have anything to do with with strength Right. For yeah. one thing. So that was that was news to people in the study group, about at least half of them when I when I, we went through this on uh, Friday, hadn't didn't didn't realize that it was timing and not strength. Like they had never heard that before. So that's that's interesting. Right. And, it, and if and if it's something that we can't detect clinically, right, then there's a question of like, how could we know if somebody was having that problem? So I think what happens is that. And this is Bill Laterman raises this in the paper. You know, the approach that's taken is you're just going to contract it all the time, right? Like, we just got to turn it on and make sure that it's turned on when we do our our movements, and that's that's the approach that we're going to take, right? And the other thing about studies like that is, right, they're looking at people with back pain and people without back pain, and they're seeing an association that doesn't tell us anything about causation, right? It could be the fact that these people are chronic late transversus abdominis firers, and that's why they have back pain. But it could just as easily be they have back pain, and that's why they're doing this thing with their muscles. Or it could be that there's a third thing that's causing both of them, and we have no way of knowing that, right? So a lot of inferences were made from a, like a, a very small body of research. Yeah, and, and, and you use the word association. Like another word is like correlation, right? Correlation right. is not causation. It's like if you go in statistics at your local community college like that's like the first thing they say on day one right on the board right it's because this that happens so like other funny ones are like another like a correlation is not causation means that like if two things are associated it doesn't mean that one causes the other so the classic the classic like um if you use that same reasoning and other aspects like organic food sales is associated is associated with uh rise in autism right because they both go up but it that doesn't mean like go eat pesticides, 
and then you're going to have less like autism, right? It, it's like it's, they just both go up, but they don't actually explain anything. And you made a good, a good point, which um, the author makes in the paper of like, maybe it's a protective mechanism, right? And I think he used an example of like, if you hurt your shoulder and you're going to reach for something, you're going to take an alternative strategy because your shoulder hurts, right? And then also when we talk about like um, individuals with low back pain, right? We, there, there, there's other research to suggest that people with low back pain have, have moved different movement strategies and they move more rigidly and they tend to have more co-contraction around, around the spine, which makes sense, right? If my back hurts, I'm getting off the couch in a different way because my back hurts, right? So then if like, if, if we, if we recognize that people with back pain have more, act, more muscle activity, we should probably maybe do like less muscle activity or just entertain them as time heals them and things of that nature. But like, this is where it's important to like um, just understand where things come from and have conversations to, um, to just kind of look at different angles and, and you end up getting a better understanding. And that's what this is all about. So anyone listening who's like, oh my God, I feel like a fraud. Me too. I've done all the things. I've like done the transverse abdominis, all that. But it's important to like listen to people like Jeremy, you know, explain the research. So we get a better, a better picture. I hope you're enjoying this week's episode. This is my way of giving back to the Pilates industry. This industry has given me so much in my lifetime and you can give back to the industry as well by giving this podcast a five-star review, which allows us to reach more Pilates instructors. When we reach more Pilates instructors, we can have more of an influence on the Pilates industry and encourage the industry to grow using science-based tools. This is actionable right now. You can pause this and give a double tap on the five stars and it can have an incredible impact. But with that, let's get back into the action. Yeah, and I think, you know, like almost anything where like that we're going to talk about today, you know, there's there is probably still an instance where I might draw someone's attention to the the way that their abdominal muscles work when they exhale or something like that, right? And it's not like, oh God, I never, like I just ignore that body part forever. It's just the story that we've been told is uh, certainly doesn't, isn't backed up by the, the research. So we have to kind of loosen our grip on certain ideas, you know? The other thing I would say about the transverse abdominus piece is like, you know, for, for people without back pain, you know, like this this idea, and this is true, I would say, of sort of pre-cueing muscles, like kind of across the board, you know, like we know from the research that our abdominal muscles are working at a very low level during like most of our daily activities up to and including like lifting things. Yeah, like I think if you, you know, they do studies where people are lifting like, you know, like 40 pounds or something, it's, it's spiking at like 5% of their maximum voluntary contraction. It's like not that, that much. So if you're pre-cueing the abdominals, you know, I think it's, you know, it stands to reason that we very easy to like overshoot, right? And now you're doing more muscle activity than you need for the task at hand, which is basically the, like the definition of inefficiency. And, you know, to say nothing of how, how like, I think it probably like messes with your, the way your brain is organizing your movement to like kind of throw this, like this kind of arbitrary wrench in the middle of it where you're like, okay, but contract this thing first before you do any of the stuff you, you would normally do. 
And, and we only do that with muscles we know. Have you ever heard anyone say like flex your like, I don't know, your flexor digitorum to protect like the back of your wrist? You, you know right. what I mean? Like we only do that on muscles that are popular, right? Because if, yeah. if, that, if that mechanism were true, you would probably need to do it with, with other parts of your body too. Um, and it's one of those, like, maybe there's, maybe it's like our understanding of the body that needs more updating than us, like interrupting automatic processes. And like, us like, like what, another example is like, is glutes, right? We don't have to shift the glutes right now, but like, um, I was just talking to someone, um, via the internet about like needing to squeeze the glutes prior to pressing out with footwork because we're so quad dominant in our footwork. And it's like, well, maybe it's because footwork's not like a good glute exercise. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe it's because like you're extending the knee primarily. You're not even a lot of hip flexion and, and you're still in hip flexion when you're done. Yeah, you're not going into a lot of, you're not even going into like zero degrees of hip extension. You know what I mean? It's like, like it's just, not a hip extension exercise. Yeah. It's like, why are you not engaging your rotator cuff? I don't know. Cause I don't fucking have to. Sorry for the passion. But no, like, I, uh, love it. I love it. So it's like, I don't know, maybe you stand them up and like do squats or like, you know, the, sometimes it's, it's just that like we could, it, it, it's, it, and this is all just a learning journey and like, we all don't know everything. And like, there's certain things where we can update, but like, if we're, we, there's also a certain amount of trust in the body, like the, the body knows how to self-organize and, and we just need to put, put the right amount of load on the body and the muscles that need to activate will generally activate unless there's like something else going on. And let, you feel free to correct me if there's probably cases where we need to override it. But for the most part, when we're working with Susie at 7 a.m., who's just kind of, you know, up getting ready for work, can probably just tell her to push the bar away for footwork. Yeah, no, I, th I, you know, I completely agree. And I think, you know, there's a couple of things in there. One is the, like, you know, if we think we need to target a specific muscle, fine yeah find a better exercise that requires you to use that muscle don't stay in an exercise that is like where you can kind of get away with not doing the thing you're asking for or it doesn't demand it or there's no need for it right like find find a better exercise and then you know there's also something where i think you know sometimes you'll see i'll see someone who has like a kind of a funny strategy for doing something like a step up where they're not going into hip extension right they're there's keeping their trunk sort of flexed and extending the knee and then extending the hip at the the end maybe yeah. right but i wouldn't i wouldn't characterize that as like their glutes are having amnesia they'd say they have a funny strategy and it might have to do with not enough strength somewhere maybe even in their quads to do it it might have to do with just how they're organizing their trunk there's like a million explanations for them for that but unless they actually like have paralyzed like butt muscles for like a real neurological reason it doesn't make sense to me to sort of like blame the glutes and i don't think we have any evidence to suggest that like these sort of priming the muscle practices that people do where it's like oh if i do a bunch of bridges and then i go for a run or whatever my glutes are gonna fire more yeah. or actually actually work but you Either. know what? sometimes it does and it's because they believe it Right. And it has nothing to do with the fucking bridge. It has to do with like, you think that like, you could do the same thing with like your voodoo tea. Like you could have like voodoo tea and be like, this has the magic juice. And then all of a sudden you're running and you're having like a running high because you have your voodoo juice. But meaning like, it's like yeah. sometimes like what we do is like, sometimes we're help like, because 
we're, I've done all these practices where it's like squeeze your butt, da, da, da. And someone comes in and they, and they feel better afterwards. So of course, like my magic exercise was like the reason why I helped someone. And, 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 and this is where it's like, sometimes we're helping people for so many other reasons than, than we think. Right. And in a lot of it, it could be like the social support that you provide, the sense of routine, getting better sleep, uh, anti-inflammatory aspects of exercise, or just that they, they, I don't know, you gave them a high five after they like contracted their transverse abdominis. Like it wasn't the TA that you couldn't even see, but like it was the high five yeah. that, that did it. You know, I think it's, it's just important to recognize you're working with people. Yeah. I mean, if, if we like, if we, I'm going to talk about the transverse research just because it's the, what's most fresh in my mind. But yeah. if we take a, like about think about like the other end of like the research sort of spectrum where some of these ideas get further propagated, you know, when they do studies where they take people with back pain and they give them like core stabilization, people who are listening cannot see like the number of times I do air quotes when I say core and when I say stabilization, but it should just be assumed that those words always come with air quotes around them or a little asterisk. But, you know, like when they do, people who do like core stabilization or like sort of motor control for the lumbar protocols, their back pain does improve often in those studies. But, you know, when they're doing core strengthening, for example, and this is true in like all sorts of body parts and all sorts of different kinds of research, right? They, they will have an improvement, but it's likely that the, the thing that was targeted hasn't actually changed, right? They actually haven't gotten any stronger in the muscles that they were working. They have had improvements in their pain for all the reasons that you're describing, right? There's like all millions of other things going on and exercise like works on our bodies in all kinds of more general systemic ways, right? Yeah, because like both trials lasted six weeks and then that's the natural history. <laughs> right, literally, literally I could have like just gone and sat on the beach for six weeks and it would have been yeah. fine. Yeah, my protocol is to go on walks and have Cheetos. Um, and I did that with 10 people and nine of them got better. So yeah, like, exactly. Well, you recommend. should definitely, you should <laughs> trademark the Makati Cheeto method. Yeah, and there you go. Make, it, make a million, make a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> my overhead is 99 cents a bag. Good. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, but yeah, but it's very similar. I know we didn't talk about this coming in, but like the research is very similar on to my, my understanding um, for scapular dyskinesis when you have like scapular winging, like you'll do like scapular stabilization and people get better, but then you measure the scapula. I don't know how they measure it. Um, and then like nothing changed, but they feel better. Um, and, and at the end, and that's just where it's like, it's recognizing that like, it's, it's really easy to win. Like there, there's so many ways to help people. And, 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 and a lot of it is, you know, is time and like the body's going to take care of itself. Um, and, and, and just getting people moving and being optimistic uh, you know, with, with how you say something. And then that's a big thing with the muscles. Um, and I'd love to hear your perspective on it is like, sometimes when it isn't so much like the protocol that we're doing, but like the words we're using, like make sure to engage your core, then do X. And then like, like when we're talking about it, just from like a psychosocial point of view, it's like, what are you going to like, like, what are we teaching that human about the, the, the inherent strength? of their spine you know things yeah like yeah it's funny you should mention that because the day after the myth of core stability we had a a little mini course on certain aspects of uh pain as it relates to sort of language and to like the practitioner's own beliefs and of course we talked about like placebo and nocebo 
effects and the research around that, right? So there's, you know, like, yes, if you are using the, this language that, imp that gives people the impression that they are at risk or they're fragile, right? Or, you know, like, you know, I think the impression that we give by sometimes explicitly, right? Use like contract, like pull your belly in to protect your back, right? That's saying, if you don't, you like your back is in danger if you don't do this in this very particular way. But I think, you know, just by having this, this sort of like attitude for want of a better word that like you have to do things just so and in this particular order that only I can tell you, right? Because I can see that you're doing it wrong. Like that whole, that whole sort of posture gives people the, like takes away people's confidence and their own ability to, to move and to like decide how to move and to decide when things feel safe and when they feel not safe, right? And it's like the opposite of everything that we know from the pain science research that we want to do with people in pain, right? We want to give them agency and we want to use language that is not having a nocebo effect and, you know, contributing to their their pain. So yeah, I think that's a, I mean, I could get on a like huge hobby horse about this particular I it, I subject, but I, compl I completely agree with what you said. Yeah, there's, I actually just recently uh, read, read a paper, I think Jared Powell posted it. Um, what they did was they did like back, they did protocols, it's like a forearm randomized control trial. So there are four groups, um, three groups got Pilates, one got them like once, once a week, twice a week, three times a week, and then the other group just got a pamphlet on low back pain. And, and all the Pilates groups got better, so it didn't matter how often you did it, they all got better relative to the control group. But, the, but what their secondary measure was they're measuring um, uh, pain catastrophizing and kinesiophobia. So like if you like pain, pain catastrophizing for anyone listening would be like, you don't think you're going to get better. Pain's just going to get worse. It's all bad. Da, 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 da. Um, and then kinesiophobia is just like a big word that means you're afraid to move. Right. Um, and so the, the, what predicted that people got better in any Pilates group was the psychosocial factors. So if your pain catastrophizing went down or your kinesiophobia went down, then you're more likely to get better, regardless of how many times you did Pilates. So that's just like, that's just, a, a, I felt like that was relevant uh, to our conversation where it's like, it actually wasn't like, did you choose elephant or upstretch um, that got people better or how often you got on the reformer? It's really just like, how, how did you feel about your movement? And, and it's not to say that like, like our decisions don't matter, but what it is to say is like, our words matter a lot. And a big part of that is like that what I've learned educating instructors is like you got to go into the weeds like you got to understand like what you're mentioning like the facet joints of the lumbar spine you got to get in there and like really understand it because then when you, you you when you zoom out you realize there's nothing to be afraid of like when you see all the ligaments around the sacrum you're like oh shit <laughs> like that thing's not supposed to move it's like a freaking spider web in there you know, so, so it's important to like to get in and, and, and understand your anatomy and your pain science and your motor learning. So because it's, it's challenging to have confidence when you don't know, um, when, you, when, you, when you don't, when you aren't sure of, of what, what's really going on. Or that's, that's been my experience in having that imposter syndrome. Um, but, but with that, I mean, there's, so there's what transverse abdominis. Um, we can talk about that for days. And then with, with pain science, like, like what is the value of, of like a Pilates instructor, like studying pain science? Like if they're looking at courses and they're like, I could take the magic circle, a Cadillac workshop, and then there's this pain science workshop. 
why should they choose the pain science workshop? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we have a uh, weekend long pain course, you know, I taught this like a little short thing the other day, but we have, you know, a, 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 a longer version of it where we, we talk more, we go obviously more into the pain science, but we also spend a lot of time sort of talking about exercise selection and, um, and also talking about how we talk about our exercise selection with with our our clients, right? So you know, it's a it's a it's definitely a place where like that thing I described at the, at the outset here, where like you know people come into your studio and they have pain and they've been having pain for a while, right? And it's and if you are relying on sort of our common sense understanding of pain, which is like if they have pain, there must be something wrong, like meaning like tissue damage. Right, then you're you you can very easily get yourself stuck with those those chronic pain people, right? Particularly, right? Because as we know, with like to take the the most commonly given example with like chronic low back pain or sort of like episodic recurring low back pain, you know, very often people don't have like there's not all that much to say about the condition of their their spine in terms of like we 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 couldn't possibly have a good idea what if anything structurally was causing this. And like you said, there's all these other factors that are in play, you know, in terms of psychosocial factors, in terms of like people's activity level overall, right? Like, you know, general health matters, right? There's there's so much other stuff besides like, oh, I have, you know, like what's going on at the level of the, the spine itself. So, you know, by learning about pain science, I think we have a chance to like not be afraid in the, the way that you were describing right to to be able to say like okay i can i can work with these people and i can i can be confident that a like if they have a flare-up there that's not because they actually anything got meaningfully worse in their their spine i'm confident in talking to them about how things are feeling right talking them through those those ups and downs right which takes practice but the first thing it takes is a little bit of knowledge right and i also you know, it's sort of, to me, it's like also the flip side of letting go of some of our like sort of biomechanical or structural kind of obsessions, right? It's, it, it takes me away from feeling like I have to address that area to be able to do anything about their pain. Because like you said, we have so many other things that are available to us, right? If I can get them moving in a way that feels safe to them and feels good to them and, you know, works up a little bit of a sweat, that's probably going to do them a whole lot of good. And I don't have to concern myself with like fixing their ab, ab strength or whatever, you know, whatever the alternative narrative is. Yeah. And like one thing that I'm hearing uh, beaming through you is that you end up working with the person and not just the body part. Um, you know, like if they have low back pain, it's not just like, well, I'm going to look at your back. But maybe you, maybe like an important treatment is like listening to them, right? And and that's where it's like what I like kind of refer to like a, becoming like a Pilates Jedi is like looking in between the lines. Like if any if, if anyone's ever taught Pilates, they probably worked with someone with low back pain who wants core strength, right? The classic, right? The conversation yeah. never ends. And that's where it's like, like um, in, in my experience, like understanding the pain science and working with enough people throughout the years is like, they don't want core strength. They just, they want a reduction in pain. Because uh, if you got someone's core like 10 times stronger and their pain stayed the same, you're fired, right? Like you didn't solve the problem. But if their core never got stronger, like no objective measurement could, could approve of that, 
or, or whatnot, but their back pain went away, you get a raise. So it's like being able to, to see through that and then understanding that like just one of the biggest factors for someone to recover is to, that they, they believe they're going to recover. And, and that's, and that really informs like the conversations. Cause some, you know, cause it's just like being a, like, we got to like instill movement optimism in them. And, and in order to instill movement optimism in someone, like you need to be a movement optimist, uh, like authentically, which is taking courses like the one you mentioned um, in, in pain science. Um, it's probably been one of the most influential things I've learned with pain science, like motor learning um, for sure uh, within that. Um, now, if there were like a few topics, right, that um, if someone listening to this, they feel inspired to get into like hard sciences, but they didn't want to go to like physical therapy school, right? What would be like a few topics that you would recommend for, for an instructor to go into? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you, you just named like the two, two big ones, right? Pain science, there's plenty of accessible uh, sort of, you know, what would normally be like patient facing materials, maybe from from physical therapy land that actually could be quite helpful. And there's good, uh, you know, people doing and like trainings or, you know, continuing education that's aimed at not just physical therapists, but movement or exercise people generally. Like I always direct people to Greg Lehman and his yeah. website. I always direct people to Ben Cormack and his stuff, right? Because they both are, uh, I think, are speaking to like a little bit of a wider audience than just physical therapists, right? Um, you know, I do think the motor learning, you know, is uh, super helpful to know some basics, um, you know, but I also think, you know, and this is a little harder to do without the the wherewithal to like go and like read studies on your own, right? Like that's a process that you get accustomed to when you go to PT school. Um, but you know, there is something about just keeping your like being skeptical, <laughs> you know, in this really like fundamental way. You know, it's easy even in PT school, like or maybe more in PT school than in Pilates trainings. It's like there's a certain like uh I think it's it's easy to t to assume that because these people are your instructors, they know what they're talking about, and people like don't know what they're talking about <laughs> a lot of the time. You know, at least that was my experience at PT school. Is that like a lot of the information is a little bit out of date, and you know, PT is the history of physical therapy is very reliant on like sort of gurus making up stuff a little bit out of thin air. Right. I mean, certainly in the manual yeah. therapy side of things. Um, so, you know, I think you have to be skeptical and, and I think you can get a lot of um, mileage out of just comparing things to like your own experience and asking, does that even make sense? Right. Like, yeah. you know, if you, you know, I think if you spend any time like doing something other than Pilates for exercise, you know, you'll see how certain things that we take for granted and Pilates don't really work as general movement practice, right? Like if someone's trying to learn how to do like a barbell snatch or something, they, they, there's, there's not really room for more than like one or two cues. And then the person has to like practice, right. And they'll do it imperfectly like many, many times. Right. And they're, they're really not in any danger except if they like drop the barbell on them cells right like there's yeah, all yeah, like right. many uh, all sorts of other movement and exercise forms 
like take a much different approach than I think the way we've been conditioned to to see things in Pilates. So I think just looking around and going like, huh, that's how they do that over there can be really helpful. Yeah, yeah. And and, and like like what I'm like hearing from you is like there's so much we can learn, right? And that's not a I'm I'm not good enough, like we're not good enough in Pilates. It's like, no, we have so much we can learn. Like we're helping so many people. We can learn so much from like more pain science, motor learning. What I'm hearing from you is like strength training and things like that. Um, watching them. And one of the things that's really cool to watch with um with like power lifters and stuff like that, I don't really watch a lot of power lifters, but when I do, I notice stuff. And like you're like how our form actually changes with load, right? So if you watch someone like 20% RM, like 20% of what someone can lift, it's going to be like great form. Then you get to like 50, 70, 80. That's like, then once you get to like one RM, like knee valgus is going to happen. <laughs> like that's how someone's getting back up. So, so again, in there perfectly safe, right? Cause like injuries tend to, from my understanding, injuries tend to happen in like gyms by like dropping shit on yourself and tripping on things. So in our case, that's like um, uh, the push through bar, right? Falling off the re falling off the reformer or letting go of the push through bar. Yeah, like oops, I forgot to put on a spring. Like you just did something kind of dumb, right? And I've done dumb things. I'm the owner of like all dumb things. I have fallen on a reformer, but I didn't get injured. Um, so it's not it's not a personal thing. But it but with that, like something that can be really freeing is like wow, we're really safe, and like I don't need to have the anxiety that I once had um, at, as an instructor. Um, so like with pain science, motor learning, maybe some strength stuff. Yeah, and even like, you know, actually that does, you know, I, I, I think something I have been saying to our students a lot lately is, yeah, learning some like principles of like exercise science, like basic strength and conditioning, like progressive yeah. overload and like, you know, like what, what are like, the sort of strength training protocols that have been shown to work and like how does that relate to pilates where we sort of just do one thing and then we move on to the other and then we move on to the other and it's all kind of low load most of the time except for when it's like super intense and we make things harder by making them more complicated not by increasing the load right so there's there's a lot to be learned there because you know i think you know most pilates teacher, teachers would say yeah sure people get stronger when they do pilates or pilates will make you stronger and I would argue that there's certainly ways that you could improve that if strength was really your goal. Yeah, yeah. Like one of the best things I got from Pilates is like movement options. I have so many more movement options now because um, I'd been in all kinds of ways. But like, I'll never forget my first Pilates training, which was great. I had, you know, I learned Pilates really well um, and, and I'm here today because of that. But one of the things I'll never forget is like, um, well, one, we couldn't do pulling straps on more than a blue spring. Like that was no, no, because our triceps, we had to strengthen them, which is weird. And then, um, also we, we did like a aerial arts, uh, party at the end, which is cool to throw a party. Um, and then none of us could climb it because we weren't strong enough. Uh, but it was just like, but it, it was just like really good information. And, and I hope that's what people take away from the conversation is like, whoa, this is really good information. There's so much. There's so many ways to win. Um, there's so much more we can learn and just uh, just continue to learn. And, and, and I'm conscious of time, um, but is there any like um, any like last message that you'd like to share uh, with anyone uh, listening to our conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the flip side of, and I think you sort of have alluded to this along the way in terms of like confidence as a, a teacher, you know, like I think 
one thing that can happen is when someone, you know, on a podcast or in a course or whatever on social media says, oh, that thing that you've <clears throat> always thought or always taught is wrong is, is you can start to feel like all of your like tools or like all of your expertise is being sort of taken away. But I think, you know, if you spend enough time looking at like what the research around exercise and particularly around pain and exercise says, you sort of come out the other side and you real, you you get to the place that you're describing, which is like, oh, actually like what I'm doing is great for all of these reasons that actually don't have anything to do with the reasons about that I thought it was great. <laughs> to begin with, right? It's like, it's still great. It's just great. It's just great for different reasons. Like you could be doing almost the exact same thing, right? But you have a new understanding of what it is you're doing and that helps you understand why it's not working when it's not working. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Like it just enhances your understanding and your confidence and and, and it takes a lot of pressure off. Sometimes we can put so much pressure on ourselves to like, we have to be able to see everything. I can't tell you how many times like someone went down to do a squat and I looked and then they came back up. I was looking at them and I was like, I got nothing. <laughs> you know, like, can you do it again? Kind of thing. And it's, it's just takes a lot of pressure off. Um, but, but with that, like, how can, um, how can listeners uh, stay in touch with you, Jeremy? They can always uh, look at movementsciencemadesimple.com. They can, I mostly don't use my professional my personal professional Instagram, but Movement Science Made Simple is active on Instagram at, at MVMT underscore SCI, Movement Science. Um, and I think that is about it. We're not great social media users, but we do, uh, we are on Instagram. And if you go to our website, you can get our, our you know, like notifications of our courses and, and stuff like that. All right. Yeah, I'll put all that in the show notes. So just so just in case you're like walking in the forest, anyone listening, like you don't have to pull out a pen, right? You can just click on it on your phone and you can go ahead and check out Jeremy at any time. It has been an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on uh, the podcast, Jeremy. And uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. Um, yeah, I'd love to. Thanks, Adam. It's good to be here and it's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. All right. Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode and in return, I would love it if you could leave a positive review so that I know that you're listening and benefiting from this podcast. I do this 100% for free from my spare time and I just wanna help the Pilates industry learn and grow and when reviews grow on a podcast, they become more visible and therefore more helpful to the community. Um, as always, you're welcome to, to reach out to me personally as well for any of your thoughts as well as a request for future episodes. And of course, if you'd like to learn more, you are welcome to go to the Evidence-Based Pilates platform with the link in my bio and browse any of the courses that we have to offer. Uh, have an incredible day.